Welcome to the Building Builders Podcast, a podcast made for contractors. Today's guest is Barb Allen, a construction industry veteran and Con Expo speaker. Barb has a bachelor's degree in construction management and began her career as a carpenter. She then climbed the industry ladder, including roles as a foreman, assistant superintendent, superintendent, pre-construction manager, project executive, and operations director. She now utilizes those experiences to educate and motivate audiences to better recognize, understand, and eliminate gender-specific challenges within the industry. In this episode, Kevin and Barb talk about the differences between working at a large general contractor versus a smaller general contractor, what it's like to work on the developer side of the business, management strategies for working with subcontractors, and how to manage clients through change orders. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Now, let's get into the episode with Barb. Hey, Barb. It's uh, it's great to meet you. It's nice to meet you. Thanks for having yeah. me on. Thanks so much for uh, joining our Building Builders podcast. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, I've, I've been hearing so many great things. Awesome. Well, uh, hopefully I can live up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe uh, maybe just to get started, uh, Barb, uh, would love to hear more about you know yourself and what you're up to. I, I know you started out as a carpenter and moved up a lot in the industry. I've worked for some general contractors in uh, other places. So. Maybe I'll hand it over to you to just give a bit of an intro. Yeah, sure. Um, so my degree is in construction management, and I'll tell you, I just kind of fell into that. I think that one thing that we can all do better is share these um, these construction-related careers with people, young women and young men who just don't even realize they exist out there. Uh, but right. I, I found it my junior year of college when I was about to quit school. So uh, my degree is in construction management, and I knew I wanted to be a job site superintendent. So when I graduated, I went to work for a large general contractor, the now nationwide contractor. And um, with them being signatory to the union, I started as a carpenter apprentice, wore my bags, worked in the heat and the snow and you name it. I learned how to build and, and what that meant. And so then I just worked my way up in the field from carpenter to foreman to assistant superintendent to superintendent. Um, I did 20 years in the field before I decided I was going to try something different. And I then moved into the pre-construction department. I spent a year there where I learned a lot. And I also learned that I was not meant to sit behind a desk. Um, so I did not stay there long. <laughs> and then I um, moved to the developer side of the business. And I spent four years with a nationwide developer managing the uh, design and construction teams for their large um, multifamily towers across the nation. Um, but I missed managing and mentoring direct reports because as an owner's rep, that's not something you get to do much. And so I went back to the general contractor world, but this time with a small contractor that was just 10 years old. And I was an operations director and managing director there. So I've been in the field, in the office, and the general contractor and the developer side. So I've kind of kind of been around a little. <laughs> uh Awesome. Uh, tons and tons of experience there. Sounds like a great uh, career so far. Uh, I'm really curious to learn more about the difference between working uh, at a big general contractor and a small general contractor. Yeah, so that was fun for me. Because um, like I said, I, went, I spent 20 years at a large contractor. And with a large contractor, some of the things you take for granted are the the things that you get really frustrated about because at a large general contractor, they have all of their processes and procedures and their red tape to protect things, right? Um, you go to the small general contractor and you're like, yay, okay, all this stuff doesn't exist. So we have a little more wiggle room, but then there are days that you're like, 
why is there no process for this? Why is there not a procedure? And so you spend time then starting to create those and you realize why companies get to the level they do making those processes and procedures. Um, but I think something that was also really cool about a small company is that you have an opportunity to help shape a company that's small. Um, no matter what position you're in, when you're with a really large company that's doing really well, you can do really well, you can do well for them, but you can't do a whole lot to shape them. Um, and you have that opportunity with a smaller company and, and that's pretty cool. Um, I think the other thing is just opportunity. When you're in a large company, the opportunity is different. You get you get an opportunity to build more types of projects and larger projects. But when you're with a smaller company, the opportunities really come toward advancement faster because they're they're not as top heavy. Um, and you just have as they keep growing, you get to keep growing up the ladder the ladder with them. So. It's uh, there are a lot of differences, and it was fun to be on both sides of that. Do you have a preference? Um, I think I would probably prefer the small. I like being able yeah. to help share. I love strategy and being able to help a smaller company. That yeah, that's probably my preference. Um. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I tend to be exactly the same way. I like being in a company where you can really move the needle and you know not be kind of held back by by rules. I'm I'm curious to hear uh, maybe just a little more on the uh, on the on the process side. Um, are there? I I mean, I can picture some of these things, but are there? Do you have any examples of uh, you know where uh, not having the process has actually you know really helped on the on the small side or, or maybe on the other side where it really hurt not having the process <laughs> yeah I think um, take um, take some middle review for example with a large company when when subcontractors send in their submittals there's a process or they have a document system that everything goes through and everybody has to do this and but at a smaller company um, sometimes that process of what is what are you actually supposed to do with this document like you're responsible as a general contractor to look it over and make sure it matches the specifications and the drawings and whose job is that and who is there somebody that second checks it you know um, and that just kind of I noticed that kind of goes out the window a little when there's not a process the next thing you know you're like where did this come from <laughs> like this doesn't match what we, well, I know I got it, but I just sent it on. Like, you know, there's that, some of those checks and balances that are, that are missing. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I guess there's, there can be sort of that moment of, oh man, what did we just commit to? Yes. <laughs> those, those estimates go out. I, I know I felt that at our last company a couple of times, uh, especially when you win the project. You're like, I'm celebrating, but oh boy, I hope we had enough <laughs> checks and balances in place. Right? Uh, <clears throat> Are there any uh, common misconceptions that people have uh, uh, of general contractors? Oh, sure. Um, let's see. Like, being, since I was also on the developer side, that was interesting, learning what their misconceptions of general contractor were. Um, yeah. Of course, they think like pricing should happen much faster than it does. They don't, they don't realize what actually goes into making sure that we have them um, a realistic price. Um, 
And on the other side of that, the developer also doesn't realize that the more times they send something for pricing, the higher the price gets. Like people are tired of pricing this new sync that you want, right? Um, I think developers also have a misconception on how a change does affect a project schedule. Like they think, oh, I'm just changing the title. I don't, I don't understand why that's putting the schedule behind. You know, they don't understand how X affects Y affects Z and then pushes something out. Um, but I think the biggest misconception from a developer side is that they think everything's the general contractor's fault. It's as if the design team is straight from heaven and they've done nothing wrong and like the drawings are perfect. And we're like, well, this is what it told us to build. Well, you should have known better. You should have known we didn't want that. You know, I think that's the biggest misconception from from a developer side of a general contractor. Did did you have now that you've been on both, are are there any learnings there that have helped your career that you can now kind of see through? Oh, absolutely. So what's interesting is the general contractor that I was with for 20 years had just finished a um, almost $100 million project with the developer that I went to work for. And I had not been on that project on either side, but I was going to run the next one that they had been awarded. And so I sat down with the general contractor team prior to starting my new position and said, okay, what do you wish that as a developer, they would do different or that they would understand. And then when I started the position, I did the same with the developer and sat down and said, what do you wish this company would have done better? How do you, you know, just to, just to really understand where they're both coming from. And man, it's what I learned the most, particularly with private money is the frustration over changes, right? Like particularly in multifamily private money, from the time that someone starts designing a project to the time that it's done, it could be three, four years, depending on the size of the project. And those materials that they thought they were going to start with are outdated by the time. And so in the middle of the project, they decide to change materials. And that is so frustrating for the construction team, right? I mean, construction team, mostly men, men are task oriented. Give me a task. I'm going to go knock it out. Well, now you just change the whole thing, right? Um and so that whole process and the having as a general contractor learning how and why that happens was was eye opening because as a superintendent I was always frustrated like why are we getting these changes but then understanding why they happen and being able to collaborate with the owner and the general contractor in a way that helped them understand, okay, this is the last day that you can change this particular item before it moves your schedule. And helping the general contractor just be more comfortable with accepting change is coming. We just have to set dates as to when no more changes can happen without the schedule slipping. I think that was the biggest thing right. for me. Um. So I guess that kind of brings me next to um, subcontractors and, you know, working with uh, as a GC relationships are super important with your subs. How do you manage those relationships? Um, So I'm sure there's a lot of changes and it affects them as well. It does. Um, I think that for me, um, sub relationships, it's, 
The most important thing is to make sure subs understand that you want them to make money. If you don't want your subs to make money, then why would they want to work for you, right? We're all in it to make money. And if you if they can understand that you as a general contractor and particularly as a superintendent, you want to make sure they make money, you can get them on board pretty quick. They understand that, okay, she's going to protect me and I'm going to protect her as well. Um, I think something else that really helped with me and subcontractors was just humility where, where I don't know something. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just going to say, I don't know. It give me that process because I think too many times as superintendents, we go in and we're like, this is the plan. I need you to do this. Well, it doesn't work that way. Just do it. You know, like how many times we say, just do it without saying, okay, tell me why it doesn't work and trying to better understand that. And when they feel, it's just like anyone, right? Once you feel heard, you feel more part of the team and it's so much easier to manage subs that way. And subs on change orders aren't any different. You know, you want them to make sure they know they're going to get money. They, they, yeah. they, we're not trying to get something for nothing. Um, and making sure you're that good bridge between the subcontractor and the client so that everybody wins. Right. I've definitely, I've worked with a f many GCs <laughs> in my former career and, uh, you know, the, there were some that we were, you know, the best partners, uh, with, and then there were, there were others that were, uh, you kind of managed you through <laughs> just like a hammer, like a sort of approach of, you know, do it or you will not get paid. You're in this mm -hmm. contract now. <laughs> and, uh, um, it sounds like you were uh, more so on the uh, the former uh, approach <laughs> or the earlier approach. Yeah, I think where, where I came in as a hard ass was we all have to be accountable and we have contracts that we've got to stand behind. And if there's a change and you have X number of days to, to submit that there's going to be a dollar change, as a GC, I also have a contract with the client that I only have X days to submit the change. So you submit something to me six months later and say, hey, I want $3,500 for this. I'm sorry, no, I, I can't get it from the client at this point. I'm not, it's not gonna come out of my pocket. You've gotta follow your contract. And I think that that's the hardest part that I think some contractors, they're like, well, we were just busy. We didn't, or my foreman didn't tell me. Well, it's just business basics, right? You've, you've gotta figure that out, but every one of us gets held accountable that way. Yeah, it sounds like, um, you know, some upfront communication can really help with that, that type of issue, right? Yes. You know, call it out before it happens on both sides of that relationship, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the deadline's coming up. Let's talk about it. Well, and that's why I'm such a big proponent for pre-installation meetings. Before a sub ever starts their work on site, making sure that it is a functional pre-installation meeting, not just checking a box to say, oh, we did this, but making sure you go through everything, talking about these are your contractual requirements. What do you need from me? Here's what I expect from you. And just laying it all out, but also making sure for me as a superintendent, I required that the foreman who was going to be on site for that, that sub attended that meeting. If the team showed up without their foreman, I would cancel the meeting. It just the information there is there is a gap and I think there always will be there is a gap between the field and the office communication, no matter whether you're yep. a GC or a sub. And if that foreman doesn't come to the meeting, 
I'm now expecting a project manager to relay the information. No, what's going to happen is the foreman's going to show up and want me to go through it all with him again. And no, I don't have time for that, right? Like, <laughs> I'll help, but I'm not going to do their job. So um, those right. pre-installation meetings, you can get so much out of if they're done effectively. Right. So that's kind of your, your trick for keeping uh, subcontractors in the know, it sounds like. Absolutely. Right. Uh, how do you manage uh, clients when um, all of a sudden, you know, there's different specs or, you know, the supply chain doesn't have materials anymore? How do you handle some of those uh, challenges? Um, so like when a when something's no longer available and man, we went through this when COVID first happened, right? Like I bet. it, it yeah. was insane, particularly with cabinets. I mean, cabinet plants shut down all across the United States and, you know, but material changes. Um, I think that for me, it's first making sure my team figures out why, why is this not material changes? Sorry for material availability. Why is this material no longer available? Was it not available when the architect put it in the specifications? Was it not available when by the time the contract was signed? If it's either of those, I go to the design team. I'm like, Hey man, you got to have this conversation with the owner because this isn't on me. These, these materials weren't available by the time they became my responsibility. But if it comes to, our sub didn't order it on time or we didn't get a subcontract out in time. That's where it all comes down to humility, right? Like just going, going with your hands up saying, I, we messed up. What do you, what do you want us to do? Here are some options. This is what we think. This is not your cost, but this is what we're going to have to do. Um, but it really, it's about figuring out whose responsibility it is. And I think too often, a lot of people in the industry jump to blaming or saying this is going to cost more without figuring out is it whose responsibility is it really? And that's something I really learned as a as an owner's rep on the developer side because they'd bring me something and I'd be like, let me dig through that. And I dig back and I dig back and I'm like, wait a second, no, 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 this is this all this timing happened, okay, but. Um, it's really, you've got to figure it out before you throw out those solutions and who's going to pay for it. This podcast is brought to you by Dozer, an online marketplace for heavy equipment rentals across North America. Partnering with thousands of rental houses, Dozer provides contractors with access to local suppliers, transparent pricing, and mobile ordering. Go to dozer.com to find your next heavy equipment rental. That's D-O-Z-R.com. I miss the contracting world. But for that time during COVID, I mean, that must have been so difficult. Um, we used to have contracts that were, you know, we'd sign up um, for government contracts and they would be five-year contracts. And, you know, you've committed to labor rates, you've committed to fuel, materials, equipment. When everything just doubles all of a sudden, that's got to be a really hard conversation. Um, glad I didn't have to have it. It is. And so many contracts just weren't prepared. The contracts themselves weren't prepared in a manner to expect something like that. Um, but what was really um, difficult at first was just day by day, how everything was changing. You know, Kansas City shut down on one day and we're like, what do we do? Like, how, how do we do this? And then as you go through it, like it was 
it was the impacts to the schedule that you saw from the very beginning. Like this contractor just had a positive COVID case. The roofer is not going to be on site for the next however many days it was for, for, um, now I'm forgetting COVID words. I'm glad that I'm forgetting COVID words, but I know. whatever the word was when you, you had to be not sabbatical. What's the word I'm thinking of? You know, when you have quarantine, uh, quarantine, yeah. quarantine, I'm so glad I'm forgetting these words, um, but you had to be quarantined. So like, okay, the roofer is not going to be on site for two weeks. Well, a roof is pretty darn important for everything else that happens. And how do you document that? And, and do we get time back for that? And, is it really this guy and his partner or who, you know, like, oh, it was a lot. It was looking back. I think now I love the challenge of it, like figuring out day to day what the heck is going on um, and how are we going to do this? But at the time, that was miserable. Yeah. Oh, it must have been tough. I mean, you know, you're saying the roof isn't on the building. My head's not going to. OK, well, the the drywall company's got all the drywall sitting there, you know, uh, and, the, you know, crew waiting. When do they start? Who's paying for their crew that's sitting on site? Same with the cabinets. They've been built. Where are they sitting? Who's paying for the storage? It must have been just difficult. Well, and the, for us, the cabinets in particular, they were coming out of. Um, so I had a couple buildings going at the same time that we were using the same cabinet manufacturer and the cabinets were coming out of Pennsylvania and the governor of Pennsylvania just was not saying when, when he was going to open things back up. There was, there was, we had, we couldn't tell. And we couldn't, the client was like, well, we have to know when they're coming. Well, we don't know when they're even going to open back up. And, and we weren't next in line, you know, by the time they opened up, it should have been our slot. But by this time, there were two months of people that still hadn't had their cabinet made, you know, and you have to decide at that time, is there, does there come a point when you just shut the job down and say, we need to demob because you're just going to be paying this two months on the end, or do we keep going and hopefully things miraculously get better? And it's a tough call for a client. I'm glad I wasn't on the client side either that time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, they have their own set of problems as well mm -hmm. <laughs> to get people in and get rent started. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you a little bit about equipment. Um, so, you know, we're obviously uh, very involved with heavy equipment rentals over here um, at, at Dozer. Um, what What is your, uh, in your experiences at both big and small GCs, how is equipment managed? Uh, is it mostly owned? Is it rented? So when I started with the large GC, they were not nationwide at the time. And so a lot of equipment was still rented through third party. And in, in that scenario, it was really most of the time superintendent's responsibility. And we were, we were tasked with calling three different companies and getting rates. Um, or maybe we had a warehouse and the warehouse, maybe if they had time, they could call and get them. But as the company got larger they own more and more of their own equipment and they're putting those agreements together with specific rental companies so that they're the first one to get called because they've got those rates um, established, right? As a small GC, um, I'm trying to think what we actually owned from an equipment standpoint. I'm not sure if we owned anything uh, and everything's rental. And, you know, going back to processes and procedures, you know, calling three companies to get prices, mm, not really a process and a procedure with a small company. It's like, oh, he, call your buddy and see see how soon he can get something. And then the project manager's like, you spent what? 
you know, it's <laughs> some of those processes and procedures aren't in place. But with a small company, it was it's really all everything's rented. Yeah, and they, they don't, uh, you know, it, with us, my former company, we didn't really have the resources to be able to put out an RFP for these equipment rentals. And that's why it was kind of call a buddy is, Hey, I golf with this person. I trust them. They're going to give me a good rate, but you really had no idea. Right. It was like, please help me. I need the thing tomorrow. I need a tractor on yes. the tomorrow. Uh, yes. Yeah. And that's the worst because most of the time when you're calling, you need it. You're like, you're not, it's, it's an emergency, especially with a larger company. It's like something's broken down and nothing else is available. You've got a call. You need it now. And you can get stuck with some <laughs> unexpected costs. Um, yeah, I got I need to be careful here because I, uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, really sort of about to share the whole dozer solution, but that's not the point of this conversation. So why don't we, why don't we steer away? I'm, I'm obsessed with this problem. And so, um, yeah. Uh, uh, oh, you know, we always ask people what their favorite piece of equipment is. Do you, do you have one? Um, I don't know that I have a, I have a cranes, cranes in general. Like I, I'm fascinated by cranes. Um, and I will say I, I spoke at Con Expo and my hotel room, the view of my hotel room was not just the mountains in the background, but it was of the crane yard uh, that was set up for Con Expo. And it made me so happy to wake up each morning and just see all these cranes, all the booms lifted there. Um, but for me on a I did a project down in Texas at MD Anderson years ago, and there were four buildings that backed up to each other to an open air courtyard. And I had to build a building inside this open air courtyard. So we had to decide where we're going to set up a tower crane on the outside to go over the nine or 12 story buildings that were around it. Or were we going to figure out how to get some hoisting equipment inside? And we looked for a while and we found the smallest, cutest little crane um, and it was drivable. I mean, the guy, as he was sitting in this crane, his butt was like a foot off of the floor. It was so little. And we had to drive it through this little plywood tunnel we created through the main lobby of MD Anderson to get it in there just to set the columns. And that to me was fascinating that they just continued to keep up with um, what people may need. Um, and it was available and it worked awesome. We had some... Uh, some tricky stuff we had to do with exhaust because it was a hospital and there were of course intake vents all on all four sides of my courtyard. So we had an interesting um, exhaust scaffolding system put up that we had to attach to the back of the equipment that we brought in there. But yeah, that was a long answer to your question being my answer is cranes. I love cranes. Cranes. <laughs> Yeah, a couple of things. I absolutely love that view of all the cranes at Connex. So it's awesome. Uh, and then also, I love the problem solving piece. I, I, I can relate in finding just the right piece of equipment to be able to fit into a really interesting, you know, often tight spot to be able to do the job just right. Uh, there, there, there is always a solution uh, if you dig hard enough. There is. And it's so fun to find it. Like, cause people, I love when people are like, Oh, we can't, this, there's no way this is possible. You say there's no way there's possible to me. And I'm like, Oh, I'm now going to find it. Like there's a way. <laughs> uh, Barb, I'm curious. You, so you're just mentioning Texas. Um, 
Is there a lot of travel uh, in this this career? Uh, did you find yourself, you know, working from like the corporate office a lot, or, do, or are you traveling out and working on at these job sites uh, regularly? Sure, um, there there definitely can be a lot of travel, particularly for superintendents. Uh, but I think a lot of superintendents, once they get into that life, they love it, and they're just they're labeled traveling superintendent. Uh, that was not the case for me. Um, I I was asked to go to a project in Des Moines. That was the first time I went out of town, and I was there for two years. And I never, honestly, never thought I'd leave Kansas City. And once I left, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is awesome! I love being in a new city and meeting new people and um, learning new things. Like this is silly, but in Des Moines. They don't do donuts, they do bagels. And I'm like, on a Friday morning, a salesperson had come to my trailer with a box of bagels. And I'm like, what are these? Like, where are the donuts, man? Um, Kansas City's all donuts. But it's something different everywhere you go. And so I only went out of town. I worked in Des Moines for two years and I worked in Houston, Texas for eight years. Um, but, you know, I know a lot of guys out there that have traveled their whole career and they love it. Any other big differences between other than just the donuts and uh, bagels uh, between those two um, places? My favorite thing is probably uh, the differences in. Okay, I'm going to ask you. Do you know what a kaibo is? You do? No idea. No. Okay. Do you, Do you know what a Johnny is? Nope. Do you know what a lua is? No. Not a luau, a luau. Okay, those are all no. words for toilets. They're portable toilets, but guess. they're called something different in every town. And it's just interesting. Like the first time somebody came in, they're like, we need more kaibos. I'm like, I'm on it. What the heck's a kaibo? Like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. But in Kansas City, we call them Johnny's. And I, uh, in my speech at Con Expo, a guy came up to me afterwards. He goes, Oh, in Hawaii, we call them luas. So you can use that for your next speech. I'm like, yes, I have another name. Like, it's fun to learn what people like things that you just think this is what everybody calls them. And you're like, no idea what you're talking about. So that's kind of fun. I, I had an idea when you said Johnny. I'm like, uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to head here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny when funny. I spoke at Con Expo and I asked, you know, I started with Kaibo and the room probably had a couple hundred people in it and three guys raised their hand. They were all sitting together. And I'm like, I bet you thought more people in the room would know what that was. And they're just like, you right. can tell they're like, what the heck? Nobody knows. But <laughs> so that's kind of fun when you move around. Uh, that's funny. Um, a part of a completely unrelated uh, question. Um, my team was telling me that you're a real outside junkie and love uh, kayaking. Um, do you have a, a, a favorite spot to go see a, a sunset or to explore outside? Um, I am. I, I love to hike waterfalls. So if there is a oh, waterfall yeah. somewhere that I can hike uh, to the top of, I, that's my favorite. I, I think the best waterfall I've ever been to is um, Havasu Falls. It's outside. I think it's... I get directions mixed up a little. I think it's a west side of uh, the Grand Canyon. It's on an Indian reservation, and it is amazing. But uh, my last kayak trip was actually on the American River up in Northern California, and uh, that was pretty cool. Oh, really? Yeah. That sounds awesome. I'm jealous. It, it was awesome. I, if I, I just, you know, that's part of being a superintendent, why I knew I wanted to be a superintendent. I wanted to be outside. 
Um, I love being outside. I'm, I'm most productive when I'm outside with the fresh air and with people. And um, yeah, loved it. Nice. Um, Barb, you were also part of our uh, most influential women in construction blog. Um, can you share uh, some thoughts on why, uh, you know, you're proud to be a woman in construction? Yeah, I think in general, construction is so challenging um, and it's incredibly lucrative. So I'm super glad that I, I fell into it. Like, um, But I think it's not just about being proud to be a woman, but it's it's proud to be a successful woman in construction because so many women drop out, particularly in the trades. I think you'd probably be surprised at the things that actually still happen and are said to women in our industry. Um I find that there are a lot of men out there that just don't realize it's still happening because they don't feel that way. Like they don't, they don't care whether you're male or female, as long as you do the job. So they don't really realize it's still happening because they're not taking part or noticing, you know, but some of the things that go on are just, are just still crazy. And I, you know, I, it's been made clear that I wasn't wanted or my ideas were too outside the box, or I don't handle things in a traditional manner, like the just go do it instead of the, all right, well, tell me why it doesn't work, right? But I made it through. I stuck it out and I made it through and I've been successful. I've had an amazing career. And what I think I'm most proud of is that myself and other women who've done similar, there's now someone for young girls to look at and see, oh, I could be successful in that career. There's somebody that looks like me doing it, right? Um, right. And I think that's that's really exciting for me. Yeah, I love that. Um, and yeah, so glad that you did stick with it and, uh, you know, made it made it through. Um, you know, I have a, a, a nine year old daughter. Uh, my wife's in uh, construction tech here at Dozier with us. And, awesome. Um, you know, you can see it every day, right? She's she's watching. She's picking up on all of this and it's completely normalized and, uh, you know, super proud of my wife and daughter. And um, yeah, um, anyway, it's a great story really happy that it's working out. No. And I love that about your daughter too. And I love how you said it's normalized because for her, it is normal. It's normal to see mom and dad doing construction related things. And it's just, it's another opportunity out there for her that even though as parents, you may be raising her to believe she can do anything, but when she sees other people that look like her doing it, it really helps hone that in that she can do it. One of, uh, sorry, I'll just share a quick story. One of my most proudest uh, experiences was uh, my wife won this award, Entrepreneur of the Year. Uh, and Congrats. my daughter, she, yeah, it was cool. And my, my daughter went to the, the ceremony with my wife and I, uh, you know, and, and got to be on the, the runway and have a name tag. And again, like totally normalized, like, yeah, you know, mummy's winning these awards. Like, uh, it was pretty cool. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. Um, Barb, this has been an awesome chat. I really appreciate you being on here. Uh, how can our listeners find you? Yeah, so um, I actually started my own company last year. I do coaching for individuals and companies, helping them increase their profits and land the projects they've been wanting to land and become the 
the companies that top clients and top talent are actually seeking because of the reputation they've developed. And so the name of my company is Levosity. It's um, the combination of the two words, leveraging and curiosity. So levocityforchange.com is my website. Um, might be easier to find me through Google. If you just Google Barb Allen, uh, Kansas City, LinkedIn, I'll be the one Barb Allen that pops up in the orange shirt, easy to find. Uh, but I also want to say that um, I have a podcast coming out. I'm hoping that it will release by the 1st of May. It's called the Constructive Behaviors Podcast. Um, so I'm super excited to get that um, out into the world as well. Awesome. That's super exciting. Both of those are very exciting. Thanks. Um, yeah, that's great. I hope everyone uh, checks it out and wish you all the best. Thank um, you. And yeah, thanks again, uh, Barb. This has been really great uh, having you on here and and uh, and you know learning more about uh, your experience in uh, in construction in the space. Absolutely. Thank you for doing this podcast and for having people like me on to share our experiences. <laughs> it's our pleasure. <laughs> yeah, thanks again, Barb. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Barb about her career journey and what it's like to work at different sized companies and what traveling around taught her about regional construction lingo. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also find us on social media or watch all of our episodes on YouTube. And please make sure to subscribe wherever you watch. All links to Barb, including her LinkedIn, website, and own podcast are provided in the description of this episode. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back for our next episode.